All right, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 12. I thought Brendan and Riley did a wonderful job in the last couple of weeks of bringing us back into the book of Exodus. I listened to Brendan's message online, thought it was fantastic. Um, I heard Riley's message last week. I was slightly jet-lagged, so I don't remember too much of it, but the bits I do remember, I was very impressed and just aware of the gift of God that these two men are to our church. Today we're going to be carrying on the story in Exodus. We're going to be looking from chapter 12, verse 43, through to chapter 13, uh, verse 16. And to give us context, I want us to read from chapter 12, verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it. After you have circumcised him, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hamorites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute and its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of the man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, to your, your, to, to come, your son asks you, 
What does this mean? You shall say to him, By strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of men and the firstborn of animals. There are therefore a sacrifice to the Lord, all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your wonderful word. Lord, I do pray, would you, would you bring this story alive before us today? Lord, help us to see the point. Help us to see why this is here. And Lord, would we do all we can then to lean into this remembrance. For your glory, Lord. Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of my historical heroes. And one of my favorite books that he's written is a book by the title, All of Grace. And he starts the book, All of Grace, with this wonderful story about himself and his grandfather. I remember the message entitled All of Grace recorded in my memory as a message that connects my grandfather and me for the event occurred many years ago. It was announced that I was going to preach in a certain country town in the eastern counties. I'm not often late for I feel that punctuality is one of those little virtues that may prevent great sins. But I have no control over railway delays and breakdowns Thus, I was considerably tardy when I reached the appointed place. Like sensible people, they had begun their worship and had proceeded as far as the sermon. As I neared the chapel, I perceived that someone was in the pulpit preaching. And who should the preacher be but my dear, venerable grandfather? He saw me as I came in the door and made my way up the aisle. At once he said, here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can. But he cannot preach a better gospel, can you, Charles? As I made my way through the throng, I answered, You can preach better than I can. Do. I pray, go on. But he would not agree to that. He insisted that I must take the sermon. And so I did, continuing with the subject just where he left off. There, said he, I was preaching on, for by grace you have been saved. I've been setting forth the source and fountainhead of salvation, and I'm now showing them the channel of it, that it's through faith. Now, you take it from there, Charles, and go on. I'm so much at home with these glorious truths that I did not feel any difficulty in taking over from my grandfather the thread of his message and joining my thread to it so as to continue without a break. Our agreement in the things of God made it easy for us to be joint preachers of the same topic. So I went on with through faith, and then I proceeded to the next point, and that not of yourselves. Based on this essential phrase, I was explaining the weakness and inability of human nature and the certainty that salvation could not be of ourselves when I had my coattail pulled, and my beloved grandfather took his turn again. When I spoke of our depraved human nature, the good old man said, I know most about that, dear friends. So he took up the parable and for the next five minutes set forth a solemn and humbling description of our lost estate, the depravity of our natures, and the spiritual death under which we were found. When he had said his say, 
In a very gracious manner, his grandson was allowed to go on again to the dear old man's great delight. But now and then, he would say in a gentle tone, Good. Good, Charles. Good. And once, he said, Tell him that again, Charles. Tell him that again. And of course, I did tell them that once again. For it was indeed a happy exercise for me to share in bearing witness to truths of such vital importance that are so deeply impressed on my heart. Good. Good, Charles. Good. Tell them that again. Charles, tell them that again. See, when things are important, we often want to tell people again, don't we? And the reason why Charles Haddon Spurgeon's grandfather was sitting at the back of the stage saying, Charles, good, good, tell them that again. It's because he knew you're talking about points here, Charles, that can change people's lives. They're important. It's so important that they get built into the congregation. And the reason why God here in this text is telling us that again, the reason why this is a deja vu moment for all of us, wondering, haven't we already done this? Didn't we do this like last week and the week before? Didn't we experience the Passover a few weeks ago and understand the Passover? Yes. But this is so important that God wants to tell us that again. Because it's vital. Good. Good, Charles. Good. Tell them that again. God takes his time to tell the people of Israel, and indeed then us, all about the Passover and its feasts and its surrounding rituals again because it is so very important. So I've got three points that I want us to examine. Three questions that I want us to ask of the text this morning that I believe will help us and will serve us as a congregation. Number one, what is it specifically that is so important here? What is it that's so important that God, by His grace, is telling them that again? Number two, why is this so important? Because if we don't understand why this is so important, we will just mosey on through Exodus and completely miss the point. And then number three, How do we treasure this as important today? If this was important then, then it must be important today. And so having understood why, how do we make it important today? So number one, what is it specifically that is so important here? What is it about the Passover, this annual feast that God wants them to do every single year? What is it about the Passover and the surrounding feasts and rituals that God deems is so important that he wants to tell us that again? What is it about the Passover and the surrounding feasts and rituals that God so eagerly wants them to grasp and understand and apply in their lives? Well, it's this. The reason why God wants them to celebrate the Passover year after year after year is to remind them of this one simple thing. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone. And they must not forget it. 
That's why he's taking the time to tell them that again, to ensure that they build into their lives this annual forget-me-not of the reality that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone. And Israel, you must not forget it. You see, their salvation is an incredible one, is it not? When you rehearse the story and understand all that Israel's been through, it's incredible. For the last 400 years, they've been in slavery against their will. For the last 400 years, they've been serving Egypt under an evil dictator. For the last 400 years, they've had no choice but to be slaves in chains every week of their lives. No holidays, no weekends, no trips to Italy. There's nothing going on. They are slaves. And for the last 400 years, that's been their story. But now... God, by His grace, is setting them free. And it is scandalous grace. It is an exact, ecstatic moment for them. This is profound mercy, profound grace, and profound love from the Lord. You see, it should not surprise us that when the Passover came, God took vengeance on Egypt. That should not surprise us. We must understand God is not Santa Claus, Okay? And God had been opposed by the Egyptians all along. For 400 years, these people had opposed God's people. They had all played their part in the Israelite genocide. They were literally queuing up to grab the firstborn so they could take them to the Nile and throw them into the Nile and see them killed. And God had assured them that, Egypt, if you keep doing this, if you do not let my firstborn, namely Israel, go, then I will kill your firstborn. He'd already warned them this, and they'd rejected that. They didn't care less. It should not surprise us that when God came through the camp that night and killed the firstborns, it shouldn't surprise us that that was the consequence of their sin. But what should surprise us is that the Israelites didn't suffer the same fate. Because the Israelites weren't all pure in this. The Israelites weren't all angelic in this. No, the Israelites, just like the Egyptians, were profound sinners against the Lord. See, God's people, like Pharaoh, had completely rejected him. Did you see that? Don't miss that. God's people, like Pharaoh, had completely refused to listen to him. Moses turns up to the people of God and explains, I'm speaking on behalf of God, thus saith the Lord. He convinces them by throwing his staff on the ground that turns into a snake, by putting his hand in his cloak and it turns into leprosy. And he helps them see, God is speaking to you. He's heard your cry. He's seen what you're going through. He loves you. He's coming after you on a rescue mission. Israel, get ready. You're going to be free. This is what he says in Exodus chapter 6, verses 7 to 8. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. One would assume that at this point Israel would be ecstatic, don't you think? One would assume that Israel at this point would be worshipping the Lord with all their might. But they don't. In response to God's words of, I will, I will, I will, the Israelite response is, well, I won't. 
They were done with Yahweh. They were done with God. We don't care that you've been watching us. We don't care that you've seen us. We're done. They had rejected the Lord. And that's just one instant. But they do it again and again and again. They've rejected God. And indeed, Israel and God's people like the Egyptians, part of the reason why they rejected the Lord is because they are guilty of profound idolatry. Just like the Egyptians started to worship a hundred different gods, so did Israel. They had their hope in other gods. They had exchanged the created from the created. And looking on at the created, they had had a sun god and a river god. They'll worship these things. Maybe these things will help get us out. Maybe these things will alleviate my suffering. That's why we read the following in Joshua 24, verse 14. It says, Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river, meaning in Egypt, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Why is he saying that? Well, it's because they've all come out of Israel. They've still got their false gods. They're still worshipping a whole load of different things. They're happy to sort of hang out with Yahweh, but as long as we can hang out with lots of other gods as well, they want to worship lots of different things. And so Joshua is saying, no, enough, throw them out. They're all false deities, they're idols, let them go. It shouldn't surprise us that the Egyptians suffered the wrath of God, but what should, should surprise us is that Israel didn't suffer the wrath of God as well. And yet they didn't. Why? Well, because God in his grace and mercy provided a way of escape for his people. Even though they rejected him, even though they were committing idolatry and in their hearts and in their lives, left, right and center, even though they had pimped themselves out to a hundred different gods, God was patient with them. He was gracious with them. He was merciful to them. And once again, he comes to them and he says, listen, I'm going to pass through this city this night. And all the firstborns are going to be killed. But if you take a lamb and you put the blood of that lamb around the doorpost of your home, it will pass by you and you will be saved. Well, Israel had been softened over time. They had seen how through all these plagues, God had shown his wrath on Egypt, but on them he'd shown mercy again and again. So they mustered up the little faith they had, and they go ahead and do what, they, what God's told them. They take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and they put the blood of the lamb around the doorpost of the life. And then as the Passover comes through that night, there is wailing and much difficulty in the city of Egypt. And yet in Israel, they're all saved. And it says at that point, God by his grace thrust them out of Egypt. He's bringing them home to a place where he will be their God and they will be his people. And it all came about through the blood of a substitutionary lamb. 400 years in slavery. A bit like us being in slavery since 1618. And yet today, we're free. All through the blood of the lamb. Their salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the blood of the Lamb alone. And so he wants to tell them that again about the Passover, because he wants to ensure, I want you to practice the Passover. Each and every year, I want you to remember. I want you to look back at what I did for you, and I want you to remember that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone. Make sense? 
God wants to remind them all the time, your salvation is all of grace. It's through faith, and it's through faith in the blood of the Lamb alone. That's all you've got. Israel, what did you bring to the party of your salvation? Uh, Your stupidity, your sin, and that's about it. What did I bring? The blood of the Lamb. I gave you the faith to put it round the doorpost of your life, and I saved you by your grace. And I want you to remember that year after year after year after year that you did not save yourself, I saved you. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb, Israel. No wonder then the Lord himself, Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, during the Passover meal, took bread and took the wine and started to reinterpret what they would have celebrated for over one and a half thousand years. And he helps them see, guys, this lamb and this blood and this bread, it always pointed to me. Tomorrow I'm going to give my life away as a ransom for many. I'm going to die as your perfect Passover lamb. And do this then in remembrance of me from here on in. When you take the bread, break it when you're gathered with God's people. And be mindful that this is what I did for you. And when you drink of the cup, be mindful that this is my blood that is going to be spilt for you. That's why we have the Lord's Supper today, right? It's a takeover from the Passover. And we're always meant to do this in remembrance of him, proclaiming his death until he comes. Proclaiming what? The reality that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the blood of the Lamb alone. It is a regular reminder in our lives. For hundreds of years, Jews did the Passover, and now for hundreds of years, we have the Lord's Supper celebrated in our midst. The thing that was so important to the Lord is that they understand that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the blood of the Lamb alone, and we must not forget it. But we must understand within that, why? What's all the fuss about? I mean... Why keep repeating yourself? Did they not get it the first time? I mean, maybe we just do the Lord's Supper like once in a decade. What's the, what's, the, what's the urgency to this? Well, that's my second point. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we don't move on from the gospel? Why is it so important that we don't move on the reality that your salvation is all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? See, there's no doubt that God knows our tendency to forget, and our tendency to forget is somewhat embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I forget things all the time. It's terrible. I mean, my, my kids in particular, Amy, will, will point out to me that, Dad, I had this conversation with you before, and suddenly I have no recollection. And it might have happened within the last 24 hours. No recollection. I don't know where it's gone. I don't know what happened. I don't know whether my, my brain just is too full, and so things go away. I don't know. But I forget things all the time. Sometimes even important things, and The truth is God knows our tendency and temptation to move on from the gospel. See, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, it's bizarre, he says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Well, that seems a little bit odd to me. I mean, he's just said in the opening chapters, Timothy, you know, I remember you, son. You've been trained in the gospel. You've been trained remembering Jesus Christ from your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I've spent years building into your life about the gospel. Now he leaves Timothy for five minutes and he writes to him, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. I think that's a bit basic, you know, what's up? But you see, Paul knows, Timothy, you're going to forget this. 
And in your humanity, you're going to move on from Jesus. In your humanity, you're going to forget the gospel. So Timothy, work hard to treasure the gospel and love the gospel and stand on the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, Timothy, because you'll forget. And God knows our tendencies and temptations in all our humanity is to forget. And my friends, when we forget the reality that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of Jesus alone, there are a whole varieties of tendencies and temptations that start to come our way. And they are the tendencies and temptations that God, by his grace, is trying to protect us from right here in this text. See, the tendencies and temptations that we all face in our humanity when we move away from the glories of our salvation can really be boiled down into three things, I think. The first thing is this. When we move on from the gospel, legalism will be at our door. This is what legalism is. Legalism is our temptation to base our relationship with God and our acceptance by God on our performance before God. You get that? Legalism is our temptation to base our relationship with God and our acceptance by God and our performance before God. We all have a temptation, I think, in our lives towards self-atonement, to smuggle in our works into a salvation that is all of grace. We all have a temptation to do that, I think, in our hearts. A legalist resides in your heart. There is a touch of Pharisee in each and every one of us. Growing up, I just thought Pharisees were legalists, and I'm a Christian. Uh Uh-huh. There is a Pharisee in all our hearts. Because we all have a temptation when we move off the gospel, when we stop understanding that the only reason why I'm here is because the blood of the Lamb has been applied to my life. When we move off on that reality, suddenly it becomes works-based. That's what legalism is. That's the way it works. And I have to say, as a young Christian, personally, I was riddled with this type of legalism. See, growing up in Spalding in Lincolnshire, the United Kingdom was, well, slightly boring. I mean, this is before, you know, the internet existed. Um, I know, kids, you can't imagine a world without the internet, but I lived in a world without the internet. We had friends, and we played sports and things like that. It was very different. Um, But the one thing that used to happen in Spotty, it was very quiet, very boring, to be honest. I mean, we had a swimming pool in Spotty. We didn't even have a McDonald's. It was, it was tragic. I mean, you had to travel like an hour to a McDonald's. I never had one until I was about 18. Maybe that's why since then I've been making up for lost time. Um, well, the only thing we had in Spalding was a swimming pool. And, and I remember when the swimming pool got a slide. It was only a small slide. It was about two meters long, but it was like the front page of the press for weeks. New slide fitted to the pool. I mean, this was just so exciting when things like that happened. But once a year, something really exciting happened. Once a year, the circus would come to town. Oh my, this wasn't just the front page of the press, this was the entire press for this week. I mean, the, the Spalding Free Press for weeks was just talking about the, the circus. And, and I went, like every other kid in the town, I loved going to the circus, my dad would take us, and you would see a whole load of different acts. But one of my favourite acts would be the plate spinner. I'd never seen it before until I saw it in the circus in Spalding. And they would come out with a whole load of different sticks, and they would fill like half the arena with sticks, And then they would start to put plates on these sticks and start spinning them. 
And they would go along the entirety, of the, and it's like, it's amazing. You get to about here, and of course, once you get to about here, this one starts to wobble and fall off, and you're like, oh my goodness. And when you're only eight, you're like, ah, ah, ah. That's the type of thing you do. I mean, I know some of you still do that at 28, but for me, it was eight. Uh, you scream, you're like, oh, in case they've missed it, in case they haven't seen it, it's about to crash. And of course, they had seen, but they're pretending not to see, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's going to fall. And everybody's gone crazy. And they never would fall, but they would keep all these plates spinning on the stage. And I loved it. It would be an ecstatic moment seeing what's going on. Well, I submit to you, legalism can be like that type of plate spinning. Let me explain why. When people become a Christian, they're usually ecstatic, clueless, and ecstatic. Really excited about what it means to be a Christian. Aware, I have been saved... By grace alone, through faith alone. All I did was put my faith in Jesus. I mean, this blood thing around the doorpost of my life, it's amazing. And I'm forgiven. You're like, you so are. And it's exciting. You don't have to say to a new Christian, hey, do you think it might be good to be grateful? They are grateful. They are aware of scandalous grace. And so then what do we do? We disciple them, right? We should. And so we explain to that new believer, hey, listen, since you become a Christian, this is so exciting, man. Do you read your Bible? And they go, no, I haven't even got a Bible. Like, okay, sweet. I'm gonna, we're going to buy you a Bible. So you buy a Bible, and you're like, look, look why don't we start in Mark? And, and on goes the first plate, and they start spinning it. And then somebody else says to them, hey, listen, since you become a Christian, you started reading the Bible. That is so cool. Have you started memorizing the Bible? And it's not great to just like read the Bible. You want to meditate on God's Word, because someone talks about meditating on God's Word and hiding God's Word in your heart. So we teach the memorization and hiding God's Word in their heart. And then somebody else says, it's great that you're reading your Bible, but you need to pray. You know, it's a relationship with God. It's built on prayer. And, okay, awesome. I can start praying. So they start praying. And another plate goes on. And then somebody else says, listen, it's so good that you're reading your Bible and praying. But have you thought about being a part of the church? Like actually joining the church? And what that means is serving and, and giving and playing a part. And like, I had no idea. Yes. So they start serving and they start giving. And then somebody else says, and this is so exciting what God is, is doing in your life right now. And I think giving is wonderful. But one of the things you need to understand, there's a difference between tithings and, and offerings. So you're aware of that difference and it's good. Understanding that all that you have is the Lord's. Oh, I didn't understand the difference. No, I'll start tithing and offering. I had no idea. And then somebody else says, this is so good, you're growing. But, but what does it look like for you to actually do life with other people? Have you thought about joining a gospel community and a growth group? Because you need to put off the old self and be renewed in your mind and put on the new self. And that's what it really means to follow Christ. I had no idea. So on goes some more plates. And then somebody says to them, listen, this is so encouraging, um, the way you're living your life. Let me ask you, though, what's your evangelism like? Because we all need to be telling people about Jesus. And they're like, oh, I haven't told a soul. And okay. So on goes the evangelism card. And suddenly the stage of their life is filled with all these things they're now doing for God. But you notice over that 12 months of this time, since they've been spinning all these plates, they aren't growing in their love with God. In fact, their love for God is deteriorating. And you wonder why. Here's why. They've become a legalist. They've started to think that their relationship with God and acceptance by God is based on their performance before God, and they know that their performance sucks. And the fruit of that is they think that God doesn't accept them anymore and doesn't like them anymore. 
Well, what's the answer then? I mean, do we, do we not teach people these things? No, we do. But we must help people see Bible reading and prayer and evangelism and giving and serving, they're great things. And they are all ways for us to experience God's grace. But they are never, ever ways of earning God's grace. We must teach the difference. All these ways of experiencing God's grace, experiencing His forgiveness and His adoption and the reality that heaven is your home, it's a glorious thing. But don't start spinning these plates thinking, oh, God's going to be impressed with me if I can just keep them in the air. No, you can let them all drop and smash to the ground and God will still say, I love you and I accept you and I'm singing over you because my love and acceptance over you is not based on your plates. My love and acceptance of you is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Make sense? We must teach people. We must teach people the difference between earning God's grace and experiencing God's grace. Christ alone earns us God's grace. We're talking about experiencing his grace. If we don't understand that, we will always base our relationship with God and our acceptance by God and our performance before God. And so what does God do? He says, listen, I want you to do the Lord's Supper when you gather. Why? Because I want you to remember all the time your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through the blood of the Lamb alone. It is not plus anything you do. Genius. It's like he understands us. He does. He made us. When we move on from the gospel, when we move on from this great salvation, we will always be tempted by legalism. Likewise, we will also be tempted by subjectivism. What do I mean by that? Well, subjectivism is our temptation to base our view on God, of God, on our ever-changing circumstances, feelings, and emotions. We say that again. Subjectivism is our temptation to base our view of God on our ever-changing circumstances, feelings, and emotions. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. So helpfully, he says, The evangelical orientation is so often inward and subjective. For we are far better at looking inward than we are outward. And so we need to expend our energies admiring, exploring, expositing, and extolling Jesus Christ. How well said is that? Our evangelical temptation and orientation is so often inward and subjective. That is the way we think. We all too often, as Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, we all too often think with our feelings. That's subjectivism. And that's a problem. The reason why it's a problem is because life is one serious roller coaster. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you think about roller coasters. I, I used to like roller coasters until becoming about 35 years old, and now I hate them. But up until 35 years old, I had a stomach for them. I used to like roller coasters. They can be fun. There's highs and there's lows and then there's times where you want to get off, right? I mean, there's just times you're like, ah, ah, that's just this life. And life can be like a roller coaster. There's highs in our lives and there's lows in our lives and there's times when we just want to get off. We're like, you must be kidding me. I didn't think my life would be working out like this. And before you know it, you're ratcheting up another slope. Ah! You're aware, I don't know what's coming next. 
Life is an adventurous roller coaster. That's okay. Read the Psalms. They're all experiencing exactly the same thing. If you don't think they are, you're not reading them. It is a roller coaster of life. And that's okay. It's okay to have highs. It's okay to have lows. It's okay to have times where we just want to go off. The problem is when we marry the roller coaster of our life with our subjectivism. Because when we do that, here's what happens. When we go through the highs of life, we think and we feel that God must be really loving me. But then when we go through the lows, we feel that God must not be loving me. And so it must be true. When we go through the highs of our lives, we feel that God must be near to us and looking over us and caring for us. But then when we go through the the lows, we assume wrongly that God must be distant from us and and uninterested in us and not bothered about us. That's what subjectivism is. It is basing our view of God on our ever-changing circumstances, feelings, and emotions. So when life's high, we believe God's close to us, and we believe because we think with our feelings that must be true. And when life is low, we believe that God must be distant from us, and we think with our feelings, so we believe it must be true. Subjectivism is a nightmare. Roller coasters can be fun, but living like that with your relationship with God will be no fun at all. It will be horrible. But when we get off the roller coaster and we understand, you know what? Fact, objective fact. God, by His grace, is near to me. And God, by His grace, does passionately and personally and particularly love me. How do I know? Because before there was even time, He chose me. Knowing what I'd be like. Knowing who I am. He chose my name. And at the right time, then, He gave me the gift of faith to be able to paint the blood of the Lamb around my life. And through that, He forgave me of my sin. And He redeemed me. And he adopted me into his very family and heaven is going to be my home. When we stand and stop and stare at the gospel, we will always be aware of God's nearness to us and his passionate and personal and particular love for us. But when we move off that, we will go with a roller coaster. And it's so subjective. And we think with our feelings and nearly every time as we think with our feelings, we are wrong. That's why Martin Luther said the gospel is entirely outside of you. And his point was stare at the gospel, not your life. Look at the objectivity of the gospel to determine how God feels about you, of his nearness towards you, not your life. So we'll see next week, the Israelites start to go through a ton of different things where they're convinced God's left us, he's left us, he's not interested. Uh, No, he's with you all the time. He just had a plan that was different from this. My friends, when we move off the gospel, we will find legalism will stand at our door. We will also find subjectivism will stand at our door. And we will also find condemnation stands at our door. Here's what condemnation is. Condemnation is being more aware of our sin and more focused on our sin than we are on God's grace. That's what condemnation is. Being more aware of our sin, more focused on our sin, than we are on God's grace. 
And when we move on from the reality that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone, condemnation will stand right at your door. So you see, J. Mahaney in his wonderful book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, he talks through a wonderful illustration from Kathy the Comic Strip. This was back in the day when in newspapers, uh, newspapers were like written on paper. It was amazing. That's why they were called newspapers. Um, and in newspapers, you would find a comic strip. And the comic strip had four different scenes to it. And this is Kathy's story. In the first scene, there's a picture of Kathy, and there's thought bubbles coming out of her mind. And the thought bubbles simply say, things I should have done at work, and things I should have said to Irvin. Scene two. Things I promised myself that I'd never do again, that I did anyway. Ways I made myself miserable that I could have avoided. Scene three. Things that I could have done for my family, my puppy, my friends, my co-workers, my neighbor, my finances, my home, my closet, my diet, and millions of people in whom there is need. And then scene four. For even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. You know, I think that is a wonderful picture of condemnation. That even when I'm not going anywhere, it's like I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. I'm so aware of my past. I'm so aware of who I am. I'm so aware of all the times when I've blown it. And when Satan then tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I believe it. And so even when I'm not going anywhere, it's like I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. My friends, when we move off the gospel, when we move off this great salvation, condemnation always lies at our door. But when we stand near the gospel, we remind ourselves that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. For as far as the east is from the west, the psalmist tells us, so far as you removed our transgressions from us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's forgiven you. He's delivered you. He's set you free. That's why he says in Romans 4 verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Why? Because that's your story. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is finished. Not it's nearly done or it's partly done. It's done. There's nothing left to pay. When we stop and stare at the gospel, when we remind ourselves of what Christ has done, we will always live in the glorious good of that. But when we move off the gospel and instead see our sin over and over and over again and forget grace, we will feel like we are walking around with 300 pounds of luggage with us. No wonder then God here in this text is telling us that. Again, he knows that Israel, if you forget this, legalism and subjectivism and condemnation will remind you all the days of your life. It will sit at your door all the days of your life. So Israel, don't 
You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb of alone. It's, it's, he's done it all. And do not forget it. My friends, the reason why we have the Passover today is because God doesn't want us to forget it. He knows we're going to have the same tendencies and temptations that Israel had, and he does not want us to forget it. But in his kindness, he hasn't just given us the Lord's Supper to remember. He's given us some other things as well. And that's then my final question. How do we treasure this as important today? There's no doubt that as we gather on a monthly monthly basis to enjoy the Lord's Supper together, that is a wonderful reminder that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the blood of the Lamb alone. But that's not all we have available to us. And there's four things I just want to encourage you as we close that have been my practices for the last 18 years that have helped me, and I trust that maybe they will help you as well to live in the glories of remembering. Number one, I want to encourage you to regularly read and reflect on the Gospels. Out of everything else you read, make sure you regularly read and reflect on the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. J.C. Ryle says it this way wonderfully. He says, It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable, and it is wise not to exalt one part of the Bible at expense of another. But I do think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity, but it is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ himself. And the Gospels are written to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Spirit has told us the story of his life and death, his sayings and his doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Savior, his ways, his manners, his feelings, his wisdom, his grace, his patience, his love, his power. They are all graciously enfolded to us by four different witnesses. Or not the patient to be familiar with the physician. Or not the bride to be familiar with the groom. Or not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior. Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. And the Gospels are written to make us familiar with Christ. And therefore, I wish us to study the Gospels. It says this, For surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us. For we should therefore labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. Our friends, if we really want to remember, then we need to remember by going after each and every line that is written about Jesus. 
If we really love him and we want to get to know him and we want to understand all that he's done, then I want to commit to you, regularly read and reflect on the Gospels. John Stott says this, he says, The cross is a blazing fire in which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. Isn't that wonderful? The cross is a blazing fire around which our love for the Lord is kindled, but we have to get near to it. For it sparks to fall on us. One of the primary ways we get near to us, near to it, is by regularly reading and rereading the Gospels. So if you're reading the Bible through in a year, congratulations. Make sure you're reading the Gospels. You're reading the Bible through in 10 years? Wonderful. Make sure you read the Gospels. It is in the Gospels in particular which we see each and every move the Savior makes. And if we really love Him and we want to allow the sparks to fall on us, we must stand near the cross. Number two, regularly read or reread a book on the cross. Now, there are many that say, I don't like reading. That's really unfortunate. I didn't ask you if you liked reading. I said, regularly read or reread a book on the cross. Now, God's kindness, we're not an illiterate country. Everybody can read. And it's amazing, so often you find people say, I don't like reading, and yet you've just read for seven years doing a PhD. I think you can read. What you're saying is reading stuff about Jesus just isn't important to me. I want to encourage you to make it important to you. Because it's so important. Because we will all move away from the cross all the time. So we have to find ways of putting ourselves back. Regular read or reread a book on the cross. A few books that I'd recommend. Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. If you're going to read one book, read that book. I'd encourage you to read it and reread it and build it into your life every single year. It will change your life. Another book, The Cries of, the Cries of the Cross by Erwin Lutzer. It's so good. I'll put all these on the blog for you, by the way. The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And finally, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. That book, for me personally, changed my life. As I said to you before, I was a legalist, and I read Transforming Grace, and it transformed my life. The subtitle is Living Confidently in God's Unfailing Love. I didn't live confidently in God's Unfailing Love. I read that book. I now live confidently in God's Unfailing Love. It's transforming grace. Regularly read and reread good books on the cross. Number three, regularly listen to good gospel-centered songs. Songs are powerful things. Songs have the ability to get stuck in our heads whether you like it or not. Wasn't it, wasn't, what, what was the one that was out a month ago, like the shark song? Baby shark, you see? Baby shark. And, and everybody's thinking about it. Yeah, and everybody's thinking about it all the time. Why is that? Because songs get stuck in our head. You know, if we went round the room in a moment and I said, you know, a word like blue or rain, and said, okay, think of songs that have that word in it. Everybody, it wouldn't take long, but if you're like, oh, oh purple rain, blue moon, you know, it's, it's just things get stuck in our heads. It's a gift given to us by the Lord. When we put words to music, they get stuck in our heads. If I just said to you, baby shark, baby shark, baby shark, you'd say, you're a freak. But then you put it to music and it gets stuck in our heads. What do you want to get stuck in your head? Baby shark? Or Christ and Him crucified. And the reality that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you want to get the gospel stuck in your head, then build lifestyles that regularly, regularly fill your minds with good gospel-centered songs. It's why in our home there is music on, like, all the time. And it, we do like music, 
but it's a bit more to it than that. I want the soundtrack of my life and my family's life to be Christ and them crucified. So we regularly have songs that are singing to us about Christ and them crucified. I want to hear those things. I want those words to get stuck in my mind and my wife's mind and my kids' minds. That's the power of music. God designed it that way. And so I want to encourage you, make good gospel-centered songs the soundtracks of your life. It's one of the things I do love about um, genuinely sovereign grace songs. You know what you're going to get. And what you're going to get is the gospel. Build these things into the soundtracks of your life. And then number four, regularly review your testimony of salvation and give thanks. See, here's the reality. Your salvation is a miracle. You were dead. You were lost. And you were in chains. But in God's kindness, at the right time, he provided a Passover lamb for you. And his name was Jesus. And then he gave you the gift of faith to be able to put his blood around the doorpost of your life. And now you came out and you're free. Forgiven, redeemed, adopted, knowing that heaven isn't, is your home. You know, if you're sharing your testimony with others or yourself, which makes you sound good, you're not really sharing your testimony. I don't think Israel was sitting around going, yeah, you know what, I was in the room, but I was pretty good. Uh, I think I had it. I mean, the blood of the lamb was helpful, but yeah, I sort of went looking for it, really. I went looking for the Passover lamb, um, and then I found it. I found it. It was good. It was kind of him to give me it, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it was pretty much me, and I've realized in hindsight, God had a pretty good deal, actually, because it's me. I'm very gifted. Yeah, thanks very much. What? Now, our testimony should be explaining to others and ourselves. You know what? I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I got nothing. And yet in scandalous grace, he chose me and came after me and died for me. And then allow that regular retelling of your story to then point your affections to the Lord and regularly give thanks to him. Listen, there will be a tendency and temptation in your life every day to move off the gospel. So I want to encourage you each and every day Regularly remind yourself of your great salvation and point your affections to the Lord. Do it when you get up, when you go to bed, when in the commute. Whatever it's going to take to remember, do it. You know, my friends, I'm not expecting that you're just going to go away today and apply these things perfectly and immediately. If only it was that easy, if only it was that easy in my life. It's not. But I do want to encourage you to take one or two things And build them into your lives. Why? Because for each and every one of us, there will be a tendency to forget the very truth that I've taught you about this morning. You will. That is why God is telling them that again. That is why I've wanted to emphasize this morning telling you that again. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb of the Lone. God in his grace gave them the Passover meal. And he's given us the Lord's Supper, but that's not all he's given us. He's given us books. He's given us his word. He's given us music. He's given us a great testimony to remember and tell of all the time. So whatever it takes for you to not forget, do it. 
I live in the good of this glorious gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are the recipients of your incredible grace. Lord, when we reflect on the gospel and when we reflect on our own stories, we realize this story has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. Lord, I do thank you then for your encouragement and teaching and exhortation to us to not forget. This is a most important remembrance. And so, Lord, you do help us to remember as a church. Would you help us to remember as individuals? Would we never forget? Would we burn this truth into our lives as with a hot iron? And would we live in the good then of this glorious salvation? In Jesus' name, amen.